Hello, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Mike Van Meter Show. And this is your one-stop shop for everything having to do with freedom, America, the Constitution, and really just the right way of living your life. And folks, you know, I say that in jest, but, you know, really, I think we're seeing over the last couple of years here, or a year and a half, that uh, Joe Biden has been in office, that, uh, well, if there's a right way to uh, run a country and a wrong way to run a country, we are certainly seeing the wrong way of running a country. And we're going to have to do a lot about that. I mean, there's so much work to be done, so much damage that's been done over the last couple of years that we're going to have to correct, that it's really amazing. And uh, I know that we can do it. We have overcome many, many things in this country, and uh, we're going to overcome this mess. I, I can assure you of that. And uh, this is the 4th of July, 2022, and I remember last year wondering whether or not uh, Joe Biden was going to allow us to celebrate the 4th of July, if you remember that. You know, how time flies, and we will we will overcome this. And I think that the administration is becoming more and more clear as to what they are all about and the destruction of our economy. And you can see it. You can you can see it with the gas prices. And then, you know, many people are starting to see how the gas prices are translating into increase in prices in nearly everything that you can put your hands on. Uh, to share with you a quick story to illustrate this, uh, a couple of stories, actually. I was uh, getting a haircut at uh, the base, where uh, a military base nearby where I, I live. And uh, the haircuts there are pretty cheap. And... The prices have been the same ever since I've been going there. And a woman came up to me, one of the the barbers came up to me, and she said, hey, you're going to want to get your hair cut this week. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, because next week the the prices are going up. And she pointed at the sign. And it went from about $12.95 to uh, $15.95. And I know that sounds insignificant, but if you if you think about it, the that's a percentage-wise, that's a pretty big increase, you know, overnight. And she said that it was the gas prices that were causing uh, their expenses, all of their expenses to go up. So therefore, they had to raise the prices. Now, uh, you know, from 12 to 15, again, that's a pretty significant uh, increase when you think of it in in a percentage of price. Now, that's one example, person example. And another example is a neighbor of mine is planning on moving to another state. And he, he, unfortunately, his wife died uh, a couple years ago. And uh, his children are grown, and so he was thinking that he doesn't need to live in the big house that he's in anymore. He wants to move out closer to friends and family out west. So two years ago, when his wife passed away, he had priced the moving of uh, his household goods out to where he wanted to move to and decided against it, uh, decided he wanted to stay in this area because he's been here for quite a long time. But recently he decided, no, I want to move out closer to friends and, and family. That's that's what I want to do, and I don't need this big house. So the same move, the same moving company, he told me that the cost of the move doubled. It doubled in price, and this was due to the energy prices. And, of course, the value on his house isn't what it's what it was normally or what it was before and he's having all of these issues. And so this is what just the the singular nature of the increase of fuel is doing to average Americans. And it's devastating. It's devastating people. It's dev- devastating our economy. It's, it's just horrible all the way around. And that's just the fuel issue, folks. We could go on with issue after issue after issue. But the fact is, this administration is a disaster. Now, what this means for the rest of the country is 
that we are going to have to slow the damage down as much as we can. And as you know, this November we have a midterm election and we have to get, meaning Republicans have to get the House and the Senate back into control if we plan on slowing this down at all. But along with that are the states, because much of the work that can be done, much of the improvement to the economy, much of our improvement with the safety of our citizens, much of the improvement of dealing with the fentanyl that is coming across our borders and human trafficking and terrorism, potential terrorism, we can deal with at the state level or at least make an attempt to do that. And so the states are going to become even more important than they ever were. And in fact, if you think about it, that's what the original intent of our founders was, that the states would retain the majority of the control. The federal government, when you read the Constitution, actually has very few responsibilities. Most of the responsibilities are left to the states. And so the states are going to be important as well. And as many of you know, and if you don't know this, I'm I'm informing you now that I will be running for the state Senate here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, the 33rd District, which is in Northern Virginia. It's basically uh, Burke and West Springfield on the north end, and then goes all the way down uh, into just around the Montclair area, just east of that. And that's kind of the span of the district, and that's the district that I'll, I will be running in. And it's a it, historically a very liberal district, but you know, the, the tides are changing. Tides are changing. People understand that there's more work that needs to be done, and we have to change our direction. So uh, if, if this is new to you, this announcement that I'm making, just know that. And I appreciate your support if you can come out and vote for me uh, in 2023. And the election is in 2023. This is not going to be part of the general election coming up in this November of 2022. So what I want to do is talk about some of the things that, that I would be addressing in Congress. And as I mentioned, the, the safety and security of our people is the, our number one priority. If you think about government, uh, just from a, a general standpoint, what is the purpose of government? What is the purpose of the United States government? What is the purpose of the state government? Well, first and foremost, it's the protection of the people, the protection of our people. And how do we do that? We protect our people through police forces. Now, in the last two years, there has been this great move to defund the police, attack the police. It's still going on, maybe not quite to the degree that it was a couple of years ago, but the, there's no doubt that being a police officer has become a, a really uncool thing to do. Uh, I, I really don't know of many young people that even want to be a police officer, which is a shame because I enjoy the profession. I enjoy the job, but... Uh, a lot of people don't want to go into uh, police work because the, they've been taught that all police officers are bad. Now, police officers are not bad. Uh, there have been mistakes made by individuals, but you don't get rid of an entire profession because there are bad individuals. I remember when I first went into the FBI, uh, my very first squad, I was assigned to a healthcare fraud squad. And I remember this just kind of showed how naive I was at that time. I did not understand why we even had a healthcare fraud squad because, after all, these are professionals. And why would we need to investigate professionals who clearly would never commit a crime? So I thought. And then I was shocked at some of the people that I came across. There were truly evil people practicing medicine, there were bad people practicing medicine. I put many people in jail on that squad. But I'll tell you what never happened to me. It never occurred to me, never once occurred to me that we should shut down hospitals, that we should 
uh, defund hospitals, get rid of nurses, get rid of the entire profession because there were bad doctors or there were bad nurses. So it never occurred to me that we should defund hospitals or get rid of doctors or nurses. Now, what we can do is we can put things in place to prevent doctors from doing bad things. We can exercise leadership. We can put restrictions in the way. We can educate doctors. We can do our best to get rid of the officers that are there. And we can have the the help with the state to do that. And there are laws and regulations that have been put into place. And we need to be smart about how we do that. We need to surgically get rid of the problems that are in hospitals and healthcare industry and do that in a way that improves the overall profession but does not destroy what is in place and is good because after all there are phenomenal doctors and nurses and there are doctors and nurses in hospitals that do great work they do the lord's work if you will and we want to protect them and improve in those areas while we can well that same concept applies to law enforcement and i don't know why law enforcement is the only profession where the solution seems to be to destroy the profession. How about this? How about we address the leadership issues first and foremost across the nation? And since I live in Virginia and I'm running for office in Virginia, why not improve leadership first and foremost in those agencies? Meaning many of the people that have done bad things in police work are people that were known in the agencies, they were known entities, and they had been known for a while. But yet very little was done about those people. Why not address those issues? Why not improve the leadership? And why not do all that we can to remove any bad apples from police departments when and where that we can? Now, along with that, there has been discussion about putting social workers into uh, police work in having social work workers actually participate in areas where the public believes that a police officer would not be necessary. Now, I'm going to point out that it is not for people that are not in law enforcement to determine when and where people are needed with and without weapons. That's not, you can never know that in police work. And I know that because I did uh, police work. As many of you know, I was a local police officer here in Washington, D.C., You have no idea what you're rolling into when you're a police officer. And there's a reason why you are issued weapons, and there's a reason why you are given training and defensive tactics and and ways to protect yourself. There's a reason for that. And it is a horribly bad idea to take social workers and send them to domestic disputes. Uh, Domestic disputes can be some of the most dangerous calls that any police officer can ever go on. And I'm telling you that from experience. That is a bad idea. However, it is not to say that we could not provide more training to police officers in areas having to do with addiction and mental health. I will tell you that when I was a local police officer, that most of the issues that I dealt with on the street and most of the people I dealt with on the street were people that had serious mental health issues or addiction issues and and usually all at the same time. Now, back then, I had very little to no training in mental health issues and addiction, whereas today I have quite a bit of training in both of those areas. But at the time, I had none. And I think that that's pretty typical of most police officers that are on the street today. 
Well, why not provide more training to the police officers that are there? In other words, give them much of the training that you would provide a social worker or an addictions counselor. And that way, the officers have a better understanding of what they are dealing with. In other words, here's a bright idea. Let's improve the training of the officers that are out on the street. And how can we do that? Well, many of the departments have big training departments and and they have the resource to do it. Your bigger departments do. To a certain extent, your medium-sized police departments do, but your small departments all across the the country, and uh, and I live here in Virginia, so I'm I'm addressing specifically uh, Virginia, may not have those resources. They may not have the funding. And even if they do have the funding, they may not be able to sacrifice the, the time and the personnel to do the training. Because after all, if you're in a department that has 25 or less people, you, you, you know, putting four or five officers out into a training uh, situation is something that is very detrimental to your department, department because you have to cover three different shifts, 24 hours a day, for seven days a week. So you may not be able to lose those officers for that period of time. But this is a way that this is an area and where the state could come in and help provide training to these departments by putting up mobile training teams, uh, groups that could go around and provide the training to these agencies. So they are getting the best training, the most advanced training, the most recent training that is available out there with uh, proven methods of uh, you know the latest tech, providing them the latest technology and the latest training that that they can, and that is something that I think that the state can do to help those those agencies. You know that would be a far better solution, in my opinion, than defunding the police. Because what defunding the police has done has given us a increase in nearly every metric you can imagine. Nearly every metric you can imagine in law enforcement, if it is a metric that can uh, be looked at, it has increased. And in some cities, the homicide rate has increased 100%. Some cities have increased 400% in the last two years. And ultimately, believe it or not, the, the people that pay the price the most are our minority communities. The communities that the left and the progressives, the Democrats, the very communities that they told us that they were trying to help are, in fact, the very communities that got hurt the most. Because after all, after all, when you look at the inner cities, which got hit the most with this defund the police movement, which are ironically almost always, in fact, I think they are always Democrat-controlled areas, their crime rates went up the most. And who lives there? Mostly minorities. So these people that thought that they were doing good for the community, those that thought that they were helping the community, actually hurt the community. And it's because these people have no idea what they're talking about. None of these people have ever done law enforcement work themselves. And they've never seen, uh, been out on the street, they've never done police work, they have no idea what goes on in, in a police department, and they think that every single cop is racist and every cop is out there to kill uh, uh, minorities when that is absolutely not the case whatsoever. None. And so what I would propose is that the state, and in my case, particularly Virginia, and God willing, I get into the Virginia State Senate, that is something that I will propose. That is something that I will push, is that we create funding and teams to create training for police departments to make them the best. In fact, I think that Virginia could and should become the shining beacon in the example for the rest of the nation on how you can provide the best 
training to police officers so we have the most effective police forces that are out there in order to protect the people. I don't know why we could not do that. The same can be said about addiction issues, because I believe that crime, addiction, and mental health issues all go together. You know, there's this idea that when people go to treatment uh, for drug or alcohol issues, that once they go to a treatment center, they're done, that they're fixed, that they're cured. And that is absolutely not the case. We, uh, and I, In fact, that's a pet peeve of mine that I will probably address at another podcast at some point, is that there's this notion that once you go through treatment, you are done and that you are fixed. And that's, that is absolutely not the case. There needs to be an extended continuum of care for people that have been through treatment and uh, so they can be supported in the long-term process and so they can get into long-term recovery. And that can be done through halfway houses, sober living houses, increased intensive outpatient programs, and and further outpatient programs, and uh, counseling services. And you're talking about a profession, that being counseling, particularly drug and alcohol counseling, that is very understaffed, very underfunded, and the burnout rate is very, very high. And that's another issue that I would want to look at in the, the state Senate, and that is how can we provide incentives for people to go into the counseling profession, keep people in the profession, and get funding to keep as many people coming out of treatment to live in extended sober living houses so their chances of recovery, their chances of long-term sobriety are exponentially increased. And along with that, encouraging people that need to go to treatment to go. Because the fact is, very, very few people that need drug and alcohol treatment actually ever end up in uh, alcohol and drug treatment. And we need to fix that. And we can do that through uh, public announcements. We can do that through training. We can do that through uh, presentations to the people. And, and I, in fact, I think that we owe that to the American people and the people of Virginia. Because after all, it is this administration that has taken a, a problem that was bad, and it was always bad. Addiction has always been bad in the United States, and we've made it exponentially worse by opening up the borders and allowing fentanyl to just pour across the, the borders. And we already had an opiate epidemic going on, and it has made it even worse. So the least that we could do as a government is to provide the education, the training, and the resources to help the people that need it. And the longer that people are in sort of a supervised uh, addiction treatment situation, the better their chances are for long-term sobriety. And folks, those are just a couple of the issues that I wanted to address today. And I'm going to be really running down the the issues that I will be tackling here in the Virginia State Senate because they are important. And I want you guys to know where I stand, where I'm coming from. And I'll tell you what, any of my opponents that are running up against me in the 33rd District, if they want to come on this show and debate what I am talking about, I would love to, to do that. So, folks, with that, this is Mike Van Meter, and thanks again for joining me on the Mike Van Meter Show. And you guys go enjoy yourselves on this, the greatest of all days in the United States of America, and that is the 4th of July. Uh, check me out. I have uh, a Facebook site, new Facebook site, called Van Meter for Virginia. And uh, we also have a Facebook site, the Mike Van Meter Show. And I look forward to seeing you guys. Take care. We will get through this. I promise you, we always do. This is America, the greatest country on earth. And we're going to keep it that way. And we're only going to get better from here because, well, it can't not get better. Not without your help, you guys. You take care.